All right, we're in Isaiah chapter 52. If you have a Bible, open up to it, Isaiah 52. If you don't have a Bible, the folks walking down these aisles will give you one. Just raise your hand. Isaiah 52. Before I have you stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, we, um, we've been going through the book of Isaiah, and today we're going to be in what is called the fourth of the servant songs. The servant songs are a depiction of Christ in the Old Testament, and we covered the, serv- the first servant song in Isaiah 42. We covered the second serv- service song in Isaiah 47. We covered the third servant song in Isaiah 50, and then the fourth and final servant song is at the tail end of Isaiah 52 going into all of 53. Um, Hans Delish, uh, a great Old Testament theologian, uh, said this is the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. Uh, this, this is what scholars believe to be the echo homo, which is behold the man, which was a declarative Jesus of the Old Testament. This is behold the man in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah 53, uh, last portion 52 and all of Isaiah 53 was covered uh, it's been quoted over 40 times in the New Testament, either directly or indirectly. It is probably, if not the most profound passage of Scripture um, in the Old Testament. Um, it's, it's remarkable. It was found intact um, in the Qumran cave, the Dead Sea Scrolls, it, and it is accurate with the original writing that was found dated thousands of years ago. It's oldest religious manuscript. It predates anything else. And it was found in this cave. And uh, all of Isaiah is completely preserved, including Isaiah 53. Uh, It's a remarkable passage we're about to uh, undertake the study of. And we're going to actually spend uh, um, maybe four weeks on it. This will be the first of four weeks. We're going to do it. uh, There's five stanzas. We're going to cover it in that capacity. But last week when we took a look at the third of the servant songs, uh, Isaiah 50, uh, we focused on uh, Jesus, his face was set like a flint. Do you remember that? His face was set like a flint. And we honored uh, the the Korean War uh, personnel, their remains being returned. In the first service, we had um, Bob Bob Wilson, who was a second lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps. Actually, some of his uh, men were were left. Uh, He served under Ridgeway and saw awful combat. Um, he had he had written me an email this week saying thank you for honoring him and and uh, his fellow um, comrades that died uh, and those that didn't come home and he was just so grateful for the outpouring of love and many folks came up to me later my dad served in Korea thank you and and I, I'm just I'm blessed by the fellowship and the encouragement but when we saw that picture of the Marines with their steel salute and face set as a flint uh, I'm just I'm I was told long ago not to ever include my family in illustrations. And, and I have tried to honor that, but I won't do that. Today, I'm going to break that. Um, I had the privilege to go back down to San Diego this week. Um, and my son, my oldest son, and, and, um, and then my youngest son, we were all together with my wife. The four of us went down there. And uh, Daniel, my 19-year-old, uh, was uh, inducted, uh, induction ceremony into the Naval ROTC, so he's now a fourth-class midshipman. And I want to show you what it looks like to have your face set as a flint. Take a look at this. I'm going to brag a little bit, but it's cool, so let's do it. That's a DI. He's a really mean dude. That's pretty. That's that's a good salute, boy. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> and then, uh, and then there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's enough. Take it off. All right. Uh, I. But I. I'm. I, contemplating that and thinking he, he's a Navy option. There were Marines there. Um, and I was thinking about that and I was driving back with my 16 year old. Actually, we went to go see a movie last night, Michael and I, and we were, he was, we had really enjoyed our trip to San Diego and Michael's real contemplative. And he asked me, he said, dad, when you were 16, my age, you know, what, what were some of the things? And, and we just had this kind of heart to heart talk. 
And I was thinking, you know, first of all, I wasn't asking questions like you're asking at 16. Um, and, and processing this idea, watching his older brother step into the military, wanting to do naval special warfare, what that future holds, kind of looking at the, as a young person, looking at the future and, and what we're facing as a nation and all the changes we're going through and the trials that we're facing and we're watching the nation kind of split and divided and what are we all about? Why, why are we serving? What are we protecting? Where are we going? Uh, is America exceptional? Is it not exceptional? Are, 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 are they occupiers or liberators? Or, you know, the whole nation's divided. And, and uh, here my 16-year-old's asking these questions and looking at his future at 16. And um, I just, one of the things I'd share with him, I said, I, I, I wish if I had known at, at 16 what I know at 54, and I said, one of the things your generation is stuck with is they're, they're enamored by all the baubles and the trinkets. And, and when you get over, the, over the, the hump and you're on the backside of life and you've lost friends and they've died and your parents are gone and, and you see your kids growing up and you're watching all these things, all of a sudden life takes on, a, it's, like a, it's like a curtain, a, a veil has been removed and you see things for what it is. And it's fascinating. And I said, it's hard to depict this to you at 16 because you're seeing all the baubles and the trinkets. And, and I have the clarity of you having been through that. And all the things that I was enamored with that I really wanted to be a part of and really thought I needed and I had to have, at 54, I look back and I go, how stupid I was. How, how, and and I, I, I wish I was asking at 16 the questions you're asking now. And, and I, I, you know, I, uh, the Harrisons are members of our congregation and, and they were in first service. And I was thinking to myself, all the stuff that every one of you in life thought you needed to have, the Harrisons have such a great perspective on life because they deal with all the trash in the Conejo. Harrison and Sons, they watch all these things you had to have and they're trying to find a hole to bury them in as you've thrown them away. <laughs> and, and, it, and it really is. It just, go, it, it just passes through the python. Just <laughs> And let's just find out where to put it all. And, and, the, and we had to have this. You know, your pet rocks and your beanie babies and your... Whatever, I don't know, you know, the iPhone 4, 5, 6, 7, let's just keep going down the line. Your track phones and your, and they're all in a dump. And, and you get to life and you're faced with, why are you here? What, what is the point? Are you some primordial soup? Is life just physical or is there a metaphysical side? Is there good and evil, right and wrong? Are there absolutes? Is there a God? Is there not a God? Why are you here? Are you just going to pass into matter and dissolve? Why is there time? How do we describe time? There has to be a beginning and an end. Why do we all have death in common? Why is it that when we do certain things, it results in? Why are there laws that we're governed by? Who made those? Law of gravity, law of thermodynamics, second law of thermodynamics. Where do we get these? Who established that? And we say, well, there's no God. Okay. Then, then who did this? Well, there's no designer. What? You've got four seasons, winter, spring, summer, fall. The sun rises, sun sets, we're held. You look at this. It screams of a designer. Look at, your, look at the human body. And you, you come up with evolution. And you say, well, we've, we've evolved. From what? We're devolving, not evolving. I mean, we're just, if you think of evolution, you know, you're slumped over and then you're standing and you're walking and now we're just going back, you know, in front of a computer and just slumping over and getting that lump in the back of our neck and, and, and our arms are growing long. We're just, you know, I'll stop now. And what I love about this passage of scripture is that you, you may not have been banking on this today and you were, got drug in here by somebody and you're, you're, gonna, you're going to come face to face with a question you're going to have to answer whether you want to or not. And the question is, in this Mount Everest of the Old Testament, in this echo home of the Old Testament, behold the man in the Old Testament, this de depiction of Christ written 700 years before he was born, it's going to go methodically through the Via Dolorosa, the way of pain, everything leading up to the crucifixion. It's going to go all the way through it. And you're going to be left with this picture of who do you say that he is? And we're going to take a look at another individual scripture who had to deal with this. And we're going to see exactly what this person did. And so with that, let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Isaiah 52. We're going to pick up at the end of it, verse 13. 
It's the fourth of the servant songs, and it begins with verse 13, the Lord speaking through Isaiah the prophet, declaring this sin-bearing servant, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. That means there'll be nothing above him. Everything's beneath him. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, his face, was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Now those will be the first portion that we'll cover. Let's pray, and then I'm going to read Isaiah 53 after you're seated, because I just feel sorry for you. Lord, thank you for your word. And as we take a look at this servant song, the fourth of those written by your spirit through the pen of Isaiah, depicting the Messiah of the world. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And here declared and depicted very clearly, prophetically, and fulfilled historically is Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, minister, speak now, we pray. Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth and bless those who can hear my voice that they would come to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please be seated. Behold. The idea of behold is, hey, look at this. This is amazing. It says, my servant, capitalized, shall deal prudently. He is coming to take this issue of the separation from our creator very seriously. All of us were created with the ability to love. Love is a choice. I have not been married for 28 years because I wear a ring on my finger or I said some words in front of a minister and witnesses. I've been married for 28 years because I love my wife. It's a relationship of love, not out of obligation, but adoration. I serve her because I want to, and she serves me not because she has to, but because she wants to. And that's miraculous in and of itself. (laughs) And we're both fallen creatures. We all have our struggles. What gives us the ability to lay our lives down and serve one another in love is that we love as we've been loved. As Christ has loved you, so love one another. As God has forgiven you, so forgive one another. He is the foundation of our marriage. We've gone through the death of two children. We've gone through struggles with our our five that are on this earth. We've gone through heartaches with our our extended families. We've gone through financial upswings and downturns. We've gone through health issues. We've gone through, we've gone through, we've gone through. And yet through it all, we look back 28 years of marriage and we wouldn't change a thing. Look at the gift of our five children I know no greater joy than to see my children walk with God, and it blesses me, as it blesses Michelle. And the idea is, we came to a place where we realized who the Lord is, and that, he, that marriage is a microcosmic picture of Christ's love for the church. We see him in everything we do. Christ is the center of all that we're about. And so, when all of us are faced with this ability to be reconciled to a creator, we have two options. One is deny his existence and come up with some sort of fanciful plan to deny that there's a creator. I've never seen him and I've never spoken to him. And I've heard this and I've been through the comparative religion classes in my community college and I, I, I laugh when I think of folks that have made an opinion on everlasting life and the hereafter as we all have death in common and we whistle by the graveyard and maybe we're younger and we don't consider it as much but I'm impressed with my 16-year-old processing life and wanting to know this and l- listen, you think about death far more when you get over the hump and you're watching you know, things wrinkle and fade and sag and you're like, this is coming. And you're picking up speed and it wobbles. And this happens. Yes? Yeah, you go to pull up the wrinkles in your socks and realize you're not wearing any socks. You know, it's like, and then while you're down there, you're like, should I do anything else while I'm down here? Because it's going to take a while to get back up. That kind of thing, you know? But it becomes real. And, and, and you look at life and you want to dismiss a creator for one simple reason. You don't want to be submissive. It's like parents. I, who are you to tell me what to do? I want my own way. I want out of this. I, I want to do things my way. And we know the old Danish proverb, you give to a child when it cries or whines or a pig when it oinks, you'll end up with a fine pig and a rotten child. And that's the same way. We're, we're, 
we have a relationship with our parents, and the Bible says, honor your mother and father, it'll go well with you, you'll live long on the earth, because it allows you to understand that there's a creator you're accountable to. You have parents that have issues, and you have a God who doesn't. And if you, you learn how to serve people you know, that are imperfect, you have no problem serving a perfect God and trusting him. And he works it together for good. And we don't get to pick the parents we get in this world. We pick the kind of parents we, we want to be. And then we, we don't spend our life blaming. If we've been forgiven, why not forgive and move on? And we, we heal the world and we're proactive and we're, uh, we're a process of bringing life to the world. And then if you just remove a creator and you say, well, you know what? Uh, th- we just need equality. And, 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 and you have more than I do. So if you give me what you have, we're going to be equal. And, and you say, well, wait a minute. That's a violation of two of the 10 commandments, stealing and coveting. Well, no, 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 no. Socialism works. No, it doesn't. No, it does. Well, what about Venezuela? Well, we're, but we're going to do it different. And it reminds me of the meme I saw with a guy holding a giant fork that says economy. And there's a light socket that says socialism. And the guy's like, no, it's going to be different this time. <laughs> Process that. And, and we, we look at each other and we say, well, why? Why does that not work? What, what does? Because there are, there are aspects of humanity that are ingrained in all of us. We are selfish. We're self-consumed. There are only two types of government consent of the governed or an oligarchy oligarchies take the form of fascism socialism communism fill it in ism consent of the governed is the idea that we have to separate governments a necessary evil man's innate desires to want to get someone else to do their work for them and the oligarchy is the few rule the many and we want you to we're the elite we're smarter and you're going to serve us everyone got that and, and yet mankind cries out, stand fast therefore in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. Mankind has this innate desire to want to be different. They, they, want, they want to know this and, the, and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. The best, way to, the best way to subjugate another human being, the best way to cause someone else to be your servant or your slave is ignorance. So instead of educate you, let's indoctrinate you. And then I can rule over you. And we repackage it and sell you a whole new format. And then all of a sudden, this comes on the scene. This. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. Wait, 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 wait a minute. We're, we're created equal. No, we rise and fall before one master. Who am I to judge another man's servant? No, 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 no. This is the divine right of kings. I have authority to rule over you. I am elite. I'm smarter. No, you aren't. The scriptures say... That we serve one another and we humble ourselves. You want to be great in the kingdom of God, be a servant of one another. And you read that and you say, well, wait a minute. I've got to get rid of that. If, if they start thinking that they've been created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in their mother's womb, and that they, they, they can have these inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I mean, I've got to shut that down. Take this scripture out. And so there's a war upon truth. And we have to suppress it. Now we watch the media and everything else. It just seems as though it's exponentially getting worse. I look at young people and I think it's trepidation. It's difficult times. Probably causes a little anxiety and fear just hearing my 16-year-old speak. My 19-year-old wondering, what am I going to be defending? Half the country doesn't even believe we're exceptional and they don't understand about this idea of consent of the governed and this idea that we need a three-system of government found in Isaiah. The Lord is our king, our lawgiver, and our judge, executive, legislative, and judicial branch. That we got that from the Bible. We're, 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 and, and the idea, we're a democracy. We're not a democracy. We've never been a democracy. Do you understand this? Most people have been indoctrinated and think we're a democracy. We're not a democracy. Our founders hated that word democracy. Hated it. We're a democracy. How, how in the world can somebody get the popular vote and not be the president? Because we're a constitutional republic by representation through the consent of the governed. They made it that way. They knew that a democracy would lead to an oligarchy. M- mob rule. And that's why we have this amazing thing that if 50.5% of the population decides they want to kill a segment of the world, they can't do it by mob rule because... 
It's spread out by consent of the governed through a legislative and executive and judicial branch in a bicameral legislature. It's fascinating. The realization to separate power so it's not centralized in one person. We the people, the only government on the face of the earth where the sovereign, the one in charge, isn't even involved in government. We the people. And, 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 and yet we think democracy. And God says, no, it's not a democracy. It's never been. The consent of the governed and the purpose of this that we find in Isaiah and we go through this is that God says, I'm going to deal prudently. When I stepped on the scene and, and you see this revival occurring and it happens in Jerusalem and it goes to Jer- Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the world. It's like a pebble in a, in a pond. And it reaches to every nook and cranny of the earth. Isaiah 52 says, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And that's why our founder said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created, created. God, creature, creator, creature, created equal. Oh, wait a minute. Don't go telling them that they're equal. Don't go telling them they're equal. Everyone's equal. Some are more equal than others. Orwell, 1984, good book, read it. We don't have them read it in school anymore because... It's dangerous. And the idea is all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Inalienable means no lien. You can't take it away and you can't give it back. And these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. So the apostle Paul says, stand fast therefore in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. This is one of the most amazing Mount Everest of behold the man the world has ever known, depicted 700 years before we would ever step foot on the face of the earth and he would fulfill every jot and tittle, T-crossed, I-dotted, of this passage in the Via Dolorosa. And you want to dismiss it. I'm sorry, why? Because the Bible's it's an obscure book and it's it's filled with contradictions and fallacy. Really, let's have a contest. I'm, I'm ready, I've done my homework. Tell me what they are. Let's do that. I'm, I'm happy to have that with you. You can't prove it scientifically. Well, you can't prove literature or history scientifically. But you can do it by cross-referencing. And there isn't a single ancient religious manuscript that has more cross-referencing than the Bible, exponentially so. Iliad of Homer, and you want to go through the Odyssey and everything else. Let's have that time together. Don't dismiss it because you haven't spent time in it. Let's honestly examine it. And what you're going to see in this passage of Scripture, which is so fascinating to me, is you're going to find a human being that read this and he was a foreigner. He wasn't, he wasn't, he was a foreigner. He wasn't an American. He wasn't even a European. He was an African. He was a eunuch. You want to talk about sexual dysfunction? He was a eunuch. He was rich. He was of a royal court. He was literate. He could read. He could read. And he was a person seeking faith. He wanted to know why he was here. He looked at life and he was on the back end of it, maybe. And he said, what's it all about, Alfie? And he started to process life. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled very high. There's God and then there's us. And two rules of the universe. There's a God and we are not him. And then it says, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, his face was marred more than any man. We, we saw depictions last week of, of the passion of the Christ. Here's a movie people went into with a box of popcorn and a, and a drink and they had their tickets stubbed between their fingers. They sat down and from the opening scene of the movie, they didn't move. And they left with the ticket still in their fingers. And they never even touched their popcorn or their drink and their face was sobbing and all they could do was wipe the tears. I've never been back to see it. And that was Hollywood, and the depiction of it was brutal. And just showing a couple of pictures last week of something that was, was reenacted. And the scripture says his visage, his face was marred than any other human being. I, I was a chaplain, and there are first responders in here, fire, uh, firemen and, and fire personnel and also police officers. You have seen visages very marred. His was marred more than any human being. His own mother wouldn't recognize him. Why? Because blood must be shed for the remission of sins. That's what we repeated, yes? That's why I wanted that verse quoted, and I thank you for doing that. Blood must be shed for the remission of sin. I can't bleed for you, and you can't bleed for me. We're both sinners. What's sin? Sin is just simply missing the mark. Here's perfection, here you are. 
It's, a, it's an archer's term. Bullseye, arrow, sin distance. You can either try to hit the bullseye, and there's none righteous, no, not one. You can't be perfect like God, or God moves the bullseye to where you are. That's Christianity. And the way that's done is his blood covers the multitude of our sins, past, present, future, past, present, future. And the beauty of that is when his blood is shed, it covers our sin. Why does blood have to be shed? Because blood, when it pours out, depicts the vileness of sin. Have you ever seen a human body where the blood is pouring out? I have. I remember one young man was killed by his best friend in a drug-induced argument over a girlfriend. He put an ice pick through his chest in Moore Park and he died on the floor in a garage. Blood was everywhere. Awful. The resale value of the house dropped. Why? Blood tainted it. Nobody wants to move into a house where someone's been murdered. But wait a minute. There's no metaphysical... Why would we be afraid of that? I'm going to get a house at a discount. Because we have a conscience. Because we know that there is a God. Only a fool says in his heart there is no God. I didn't say that. The scriptures did. Take it up with God. I don't believe in God. You will soon. <laughs> Clock's ticking. And for time to exist, there needs to be a beginning and an end. It's appointed once for a man to die, then judgment. You can whistle by your graveyard and come up with all your gimmicks. But remember this, if we were going to take a plane from LAX to Hawaii and they said one of the engines is out and there's a 12% chance we're going to crash on the way there, you would wait for another plane. But yet you're going to bank eternity knowing that death is evident and you're going to bank that on a comparative religion class in your community college. Unbelievable. When you have in front of you a prophetic statement 700 years before the guy even walked the face of the earth and fulfills it verbatim. And his face, his visage was more than any other man, his form more than the sons of men. They beat him so bad you couldn't recognize him. So shall he sprinkle many nations. And the beauty of the body of Christ, the blood of God being shed, it doesn't see color. It doesn't see nationality. It doesn't, it doesn't see social status. You're rich, poor, black, white, yellow. It doesn't matter. His blood was shed for you. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And we go, well, America. Well, we're going to see momentarily that the blood was shed and reached Africa long before it ever reached America. And it was so profound that he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. That this exercise and this experiment in freedom, that you'll know the truth and the truth would set you free, would go through Europe, cross the Atlantic, and create this movement that mankind would understand that we're accountable to a God. Well, no, no, no. Government can, is far more better if we just remove God from the equation because religion is the opiate of the masses. Well, just look at the ash heap of history, how successful that's been. Oh, no, 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 no. The Salem witch trials and the Crusades and the Inquisition. How many people died in the three of those combined? Less than 100,000. Salem witch trials was ended by Christians. Do your homework. Europe went on for another 200 years with their witch trials. America ended it with passionate, biblically-centered preachers. And less than 20, actually, let me correct that, less than 30 died in the Salem witch trials. But how many have died in godless governments? Socialism, communism, fascism. Billions with the B. You see, you remove God from the equation. Where do you get your value? And what rules do you make? And where do you get the foundation of those rules? Obviously, it's to subject somebody else to what it is you desire. And he who's in charge makes the rules. And you know what we find is every time someone gets to be in charge and make the rules, they like people to serve them. And they like to enslave them. And here we have this gift. 
And this is declared that we see this through the scriptures that he sprinkles many nations and kings are moved by it. The one word that caused King George III to declare war against these nation, this upstart nation of these 13 colonies was the word consent of the governed. I'm king. I will do as I please. You are my subjects. No, 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 no. We are subject to God and we will decide whether we want you to rule us or not. How dare you? Divine right of kings. I'm special. I'm elite. I'm, I'm smarter than you. That may be true, but you don't have the right to rule me without my consent. We're created equal. Well, I'm smarter. Yes, you're not, we're not equal in capacity. You may be smarter. You may have your Oxford or your Ivy League degree. You may be smarter or we're not equal in capacity, but we're equal in dignity. I don't care how smart you are. You don't have the rule or the right to cause me to be your slave. And the Bible says, if there's no God, if if a man says there's no God, he's a fool. So you may be smart and say, there's no God. I'm smarter than you without an education. A kindergartner is smarter than you. What's greater than God, more evil than the devil, the rich need it and the poor have it. And if you die, you'll eat, you'll, 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 if you eat it, you'll die. Stanford graduates can get it. Kindergartners got, which, which got it and Stanford graduates couldn't. What's greater than God, more evil than the devil, the rich need it, the poor have it. And if you eat it, you'll die. Kindergartners got it on the first line. What's greater than God? Nothing. What's more evil than devil? Nothing. The rich need it, nothing. The poor have it, nothing. And if you eat it, you'll die, nothing. Now you all are smart. (laughs) But it begins with what's greater than God, nothing. It says that he is extolled. He's very high. He is up here and everything is below him. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so the passage says that. And it goes in to this picture of Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. The cat of nine tails ripping out his back. He did that for us. And all we like sheep have gone astray. I don't need God. I'm a self-made man or a woman. What part of yourself did you make? You're not. We have turned everyone to his own way. Everyone does what seems right in their own eyes. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He paid the penalty. He took the price. And what's fascinating is that as we're going to take time to go through Isaiah 53 and its five stanzas, the first we've covered in the the end of 52, it brings me to Acts chapter 8. You know what? I'm going to back up. I want to read to you Acts chapter 8. You want to turn there with me? It's Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Christ has risen from the grave. He's already gone to the cross. People have entrusted their lives to him. Now there's a wholesale attack to destroy Christianity and all the apostles. There's a young fellow by the name of Philip. And as this church is going from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the world, as the pebbles hit the pond and the ripples are flowing out to every nook and cranny of the world, Verse 26 says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he tells him to take this obscure desert route down to Gaza. No one travels that way. Robbers are there. But Philip, faithful, jumps to the task. This is desert. And so he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge over all her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake his chariot. Stop, look at me if you would. 
Secretary of State is coming through the Conejo Valley. He's traveling down Tio Boulevard, Secret Service. You got a beast of a vehicle with bulletproof. And as he's driving down, you're coming in because the Spirit of the Lord told you, and you somehow get past the Secret Service. You tap on the window. You go, hey, and he's reading and he's going, hey, what are you doing? What are you reading, Isaiah? You, you understand what you're reading? I have no idea. Hey, scoot over. Hey, here, let me walk this through. Not only oh, yeah. That's the equivalent of it. He comes out of the desert route. He comes down. There's this caravan. This guy's rich. He's going back to Candace of the Ethiopians. He's a eunuch. He's very wealthy. He is, he is guarded. He's gone to Jerusalem to worship. He's seeking faith. You say, why is it, why is an Ethiopian? And well, don't forget Solomon said to Sheba, uh, you know, and, and shared that. And there was a huge conglomerate of, of Jews that were in Ethiopia. And if you doubt that, just take a look at who immigrates to Israel. It's Ethiopians are flying over. And so this one fellow who's been exposed to the old Testament is now in Jerusalem coming to worship. And as he's gone to, Jer- to Jerusalem to worship this Ethiopian eunuch, eunuch means he was castrated when he was young. He is a foreigner, he's an African, he's a eunuch, he's rich, he's of royal class, and he's a seeker, and he goes to Jerusalem to worship. He brings his sacrifice to go to the temple to offer it, and they go, oh, we don't take yours. He goes, this is a, of, the, uh, of the stock of, of Candace's flock. Yeah, yeah, well, it's not approved in the temple. You've got to go get an approved animal. Oh, okay. So he goes over, and he sells it, and they, they say, oh, we don't take you know, your money, Roman money. We only take temple money. You have to go over there to exchange. He goes over to exchange his Roman money. And then they rip him off on the exchange. He's like, this is a joke. He goes back over and, and, he, and he sells his end and they give him more temple money. And he's counting it up and he goes over to see and he says, oh, an animal. Oh, I got to go to some more money. So he exchanged more money finally. And he goes to buy an approved animal. And as he gets up there, he sees his animal in the, I thought it wasn't approved. Well, it is now. We prayed over it. And uh, it's five times as much money. And he finally gets that and he thinks, this, whatever I've been reading in Isaiah, what's happening in this building is a farce. And I'll tell you what, mankind is so good at screwing up what God's done. There's no bigger stick to hit someone overhead with than God. And we use, we use religion to ingratiate and enrich ourselves. Build buildings and impress people. And, and this Ethiopian is leaving Jerusalem and he's like, I'm just going to get back to what ministered to me. And he's opening up the scrolls and he's reading Isaiah. And he's in 53 as he's reading and the spirit of the Lord moves Philip to go this obscure route through robbers and thieves into the desert. And he comes in and there's the caravan. He goes past the secret service, taps, there's no window. But the Ethiopian's like, whoa. He says, do you know what you're reading? And the text goes on to say, so Philip ran to him, heard him reading, verse 30, the prophet Isaiah, and said, do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31, and he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And the place in the scripture which he read was this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth, and his humiliation, his justice was taken away. Who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Hmm. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? And those of you saying, well, Isaiah 53 isn't about Jesus. It's, 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 it's written towards the nation of Israel. Oh, the nation of Israel needed a savior. This one's coming to die for their sins. Anytime God reflected to the nation of Israel, he talked about their failure. And, and if you have any questions about it not being about the Lord, here we go. Then Philip, verse 35, opened his mouth, beginning at the scriptures, preached Jesus to him, Isaiah 53. Now, as they went down the road, they came and saw some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus, is, Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. Beginning at the scriptures, he preached Jesus to him. Beginning at the scripture, this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Isaiah 53. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. I'm going to introduce you to Jesus Christ, and it's all in Isaiah 53. For those of you from a Jewish background, this is your Torah. This is, this is, I won't even use the New Testament. Philip didn't. There it is, buddy. Right there. See this? And you know what's cool about this guy? He can read. 
He hasn't been indoctrinated. He's been educated. I, 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 I can watch videos. Yeah, but can you read? Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. Read, study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study. I don't like to study. It's boring. You're boring. Read. <laughs> so Philip ran to him. He heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And the place in the scripture which he read was this. And there it is, Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before it shears of silence, so he opened on his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And then he says, hey, you know what? This is really cool. Old depiction of it. As they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Which brings us to what C.S. Lewis called the trilemma. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. That's his title. It's not his last name. Jesus, God saved, Joshua, Joshua, is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Okay, stop. Jesus said to his disciples, who do you, you have to make that personal, who do you say that I am? Jesus is asking you, who do you say that I am? You can say one of three things. If you're smart and you've done some reading, you can say he's, either a liar, Jesus Christ is a liar, or you can say he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Those are your only three options. He's a liar because he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved but that of Jesus Christ. He either knew he wasn't and he said he was, which makes him a liar, or he's a lunatic He said all those things, believed himself to be all those things, and he wasn't. He needed to go to Happydale or Hotel California, which is now sea sushi sucky. Right? Or he's Lord. That's your three options. You can't say he was a good man, but he wasn't God because he said he was God. So that makes him either a liar or a lunatic. You got to make your decision. The Ethiopian looks at it. He's moved by it. He reads it. He says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So much so, this foreigner, this African, this eunuch, this rich man, this man of royal blood, literate, seeking faith, He's not even European, so don't give me the old white guys gimmick. He's an African. Long before Christianity ever reached Europe, it went to Africa. The oldest church is the Ethiopian Coptic church founded by this dude. Third century. White men didn't evangelize Africa. This guy did. or European depiction of it. Why did this happen? Because the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. This guy had come to Jerusalem to worship. But that brings me to the Ethiopian Coptic church. This is, this is April 20th, 2015. Ethiopian Coptics. Some of them are Eritrean. They're on the shore of the Mediterranean looking at Christian Europe from what they declare to be ISIS Africa. They had taken these Christians in a caravan who were trying to find refuge anywhere that they would be given safe haven. And the cowards covered their face We seem to see that a lot these days. And they have a method to instill 
their will on mankind. It's a fascinating method. It's called, are you ready? Got to be real smart to process this. It's called fear. They want you to be paralyzed in fear. This Ethiopian says, I believe in Jesus Christ. He's baptized and goes into Africa. One God changes one man who changes one nation. Ethiopia. One God changes one man who changes one nation. Ethiopia, third century. The guy in Acts 8. The people who are affected by this one God who affected this one man who affected this one nation, generations later, professing Christ, and three of the 20 that were beheaded. You see, the ones that didn't profess Christ were mercifully shot in the head. The 20 that professed Christ had their heads cut off. Three of them had just professed Christ the day before. And they wanted to intimidate all of Christendom, so they took, they took the biggest ISIS members they could, like a Goliath with a David, and marched them in front of television for 27 minutes while they brought them down to the shores of the Mediterranean, lifted their heads, and cut them off in front of everyone to witness. And the 20 that died by beheading were Coptic Ethiopian Christians who had been inspired by Acts chapter 8 centuries earlier One God changed one man who changed one nation. And in the midst of the 1040 window, and when I say that, I mean longitude and latitude, where 90% of the Muslim world exists, this Ethiopian nation holding with their Coptic traditions based on Acts chapter 8 from Isaiah 53 that we're reading in the comfort of this room without any threat of being beheaded, walk faithfully and fearlessly, not to their death, but to the beginning of true life, fearlessly. While all the 1040 window of the Arab world and the African world was watching, these two women who had been praying for their brother to come to Christ and give his heart to the Lord witnessed the beheading of their brother who the day before had given his life to Christ. And here he is. The same inspiration of Acts chapter 8, Ethiopian eunuch, hundreds of years later, in the midst of what the world would consider paralyzing fear, they ask him and they say, do you really believe in Jesus? And he said, yes, their God is my God. Then you're going to die an awful death then I die with my brothers. And I could show you the picture, but I won't, of his head next to his body. And here we are in this room, and we go, oh, what an awful time to be alive. It's just awful. I'm so scared. And I'm not making fun of you because as I was driving back, contemplating my 19-year-old saluting and taking an oath of office that he will defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and not knowing what that nation's going to look like through the course of his career. And in the very early parts of his career, he's going to be in harm's way, especially if he wants to do naval special warfare. He will be in harm's way. And my 16-year-old looking at life and asking me questions of a future he wants to make sure he makes an impact on. And I think my 16-year-old, my 19-year-old, hey, boys, one God changed one man to change one nation. So calm down, Rob, because God's in control. The one who could depict 700 years before the event ever happened and touch a man in a chariot on his way to Ethiopia by a guy who comes over the desert to go through the security guards to reach him and tap on his beast limousine and the window come down and be reading Isaiah 53 and show him Christ through the process of that that his life would be brought these tapes. Work with me here, people. And the Lord said, Rob, are you afraid for your boys? 
No. No. I'm proud of him. The church is spread by the blood of the martyrs. You see, this is a cosmic battle. Either there's a God or there isn't. And if there is, he's come to set men free. And I believe that with all my heart. And I know no greater joy than to see my children walk with God. And I want them to have courage. And I want them to stand for what is right. After the Ethiopian read this, he got in his chariot. He began to ride back to Ethiopia. He gets to Isaiah 56. And look at the Lord blessing him. The Lord says, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house. And within my walls a place and a name better than that of the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Your head may be cut off, but not your name. You're going to be all right. One God changed one man that changed one nation. I want to say this to the young people. Don't be disillusioned or discouraged. There is truly a lot to live for. There is a God. He loves you and he has a plan, a marvelous plan for you. Keep your eyes on him, the author and finisher of your faith. And God will keep thee in perfect peace whose mind is steadfast on thee. If you're depressed right now, it's because you're looking at the wrong things. Look to the Lord and watch. Life takes on a whole new meaning. I can tell you that at 54 because I was just as depressed as you are at the age you are now. And at 54, I can tell you, the veil's been removed and this is really an exciting time to be alive. And stuff like that is so cool because I can tell you I've lived it and experienced it and I'm blessed by it. And for you older folks, the only way that the eunuch understood it is because somebody shared it. Don't be afraid to share it with your kids. And the only reason why we don't and we don't stand for it is one word, fear. Get over it. We don't have to be afraid anymore. Really, what are they going to threaten me with? Heaven? Hello? This is so exciting. One God changed one man, changed one nation. I close with this. I look at my two boys. And I think one man was changed by one God that changed one nation. I got two boys. Light it up, fellas. Dad's proud of you. In this room is the hope of the, of the nation and the world. But we won't get anywhere if we're afraid. And I, I'm done with fear. Really, what does it profit? It just makes your stomach hurt. Folks, be inspired by this Ethiopian who realized in the power of Isaiah 53 that the world is a bright and hopeful place because as the Lord went to the cross for us, we will go to the world for him. And then eternity awaits us, one that is where we begin to truly live. 